Do we have a, a theme song yet? No. no. Play your, play your flute. All right. John, will, he'll, he'll do it. I know he will. Yeah. The people who like this are lying. Uh, oh. <laughs> They're lying to you. See, I'm not playing it so loud this time. Yeah, you have to be gentle. That's so nice. you talk over it. Do you like be introduced to the show? To be frank, this is worse than I remember. <laughs> no, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> All right, this is the Kate and Vince Gelsa podcast. <coughs> oh, my God. No, I'm going to clear my throat again and start all over okay. again. <coughs> Ready? Yes. This is the Kate and Vince Gelsa podcast, Hello. episode four. Hello, episode four. And this is, I'm Kate Skelsa. And I'm Vince Skelsa. And we have a, oh, that sounded good. That was yeah, like a, yeah. Oh. Hello. I'm the father. And I'm the daughter. She's the daughter. Uh, that sounded like the beginning of a, a sitcom. Yeah. And, and we get up to crazy. <laughs> Who knows what'll happen? <laughs> and we have a special guest, as we had last week and again, or two weeks ago, and we have again uh, with us my mother and your wife, Freddie Skelsa. Hi. Hello. And on the last episode, we started talking about... The history of the radio station WFMU. In East Orange, New Jersey, back in the 60s, and now currently in Jersey City, mm -hmm. New Jersey. And at WFMU.org online, it continues to be uh, one of the most important radio stations worldwide, with a worldwide audience because of the Internet. And on episode three, we talked about how you came to be... The station manager, Pro, no, the program, program manager, program director, the program director, yeah. in the spring of '68, 1968, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and mom was also involved and had a radio show Sunday mornings, right? Where she, that was a it was for kids and with kids, right? And that you want you did you have did you know kids who listened? Did you have families? Did you get any feedback from children? Uh, the only feedback I got was from um, prisoners who were no. incarcerated no. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at uh, Broadway no. Prison, it's no. true. New Jersey. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> there were lovely letters. You got letters from prisoners. Yes. Yeah, she did. Yes, that was the only feedback I would get. What did they say? They said they appreciated my show and I should keep doing it. <laughs> but this is not a, but you, I mean, there were like children on your show. Right. But, do, oh, okay, we're not going to delve into this. We're I never gonna. even thought of that. L literally. You, you saw it as a sweet, like they liked her yeah. reading Winnie the Pooh, that yeah. it was a sweet But back in, back in the day, there were um, a lot more than now, prisoners would write to radio people. Because now I think people who were incarcerated have a lot more options for getting um, input from the outside world. And back when I started doing radio in the 60s, 70s, 80s, I would get a lot of mail. And, and over the past 20 years, that mail stopped coming. I would get a lot of mail from prisoners who were incarcerated in local 
area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut prisons. Because maybe they were maybe allowed to have radios. Yeah, or something. But they they definitely relate. And maybe it was because a lot of them were in jail because of uh, uh, marijuana charges or something. So they were listeners on the outside. And now that they were in jail, they were listening because we were like their old friends or something. Maybe. I don't know why, but it That's stopped. That's funny. Yeah. You know. So your your main audience was prisoners. <laughs> As, if the mail was any indication, oh. yeah. Well, children but probably I, wouldn't write letters. They would just listen. They're not. Didn't right, didn't right. the young uh, the younger end of the of like the teenage you know the older teenagers who were listening to the station anyhow didn't they listen to you? Didn't you have like hippie kids coming? I got no response no? to <laughs> indicate that kind of fandom oh, no i thought but, mm. no but okay so spring of spring of 68 you guys had done this fundraiser to stay on to make enough money to stay on the air all summer and you had done your takeover of what had been a more sort of just educational uh station that had more traditional a jazz show mm-hmm. or whatever show mm-hmm. And so we began to get noticed by the music um, community in New York. Um, record companies started sending us records. Mm-hmm. This was before there were whole departments at record companies. This was, you know, when there were record companies. Right. Uh, but but by the 80s and 90s, uh, there were whole departments at record companies to deal with college radio. There was no such thing then. We had, um, you know, just people who wound up listening to us, who would send stuff out to us. And writers especially got involved. And in this recording that you're about to hear, there were um, a couple of guys who wrote for a newspaper called the East Village Other in New York, which was like the alternative paper to the alternative paper, which was the Village Voice. By the late 60s, the Village Voice had become almost, like, institutionalized. It still was pretty pretty far out there, but there came a need for something more far out than the Voice was at that point. So somebody started a paper called the East Village Other, because there became a distinction between the West Village and the East Village, um, and the East Village is sort of what we call the Lower East Side now, too. Mm-hmm. You know, that mm-hmm. was part of the East Village. And there were the guys, um, their names were Rudnick and Frawley, Bob Rudnick and Dennis Frawley, who wrote um, a combination political and cultural column for the East Village Other called Cocaine Karma, spelled with K's, because this was back in the day when you spelled America with a K. Sure. Because uh, it was all very um, um, Kafkaesque, I guess, or something. Uh, and Rudnick and Frawley started doing a show on on FMU, which was very much rooted in a Midwestern scene because they had both like gone to school or something in, in Detroit. So they were the ones who brought the MC5 to the station and uh, a lot of avant-garde jazz. Um, they literally brought the MC5 to the station. The MC5 had been signed by Elektra Records, and uh, uh, the Cocaine Karma Twins 
brought John Sinclair and all these guys by. And so you and, were having guests, musicians were coming. Yeah, oh well, yeah, all kinds of musicians were now coming out. We were um, getting involved with some of the clubs in the city, like the Cafe Ogogo, which was across the street from the Bitter End on uh, Bleecker Street. Mm-hmm. Um, we did, I think that fall, we did a benefit weekend for the station at the Cafe Ogogo, and, and um, o- Odetta appeared. Oh, my gosh. And uh, um, a version of Blood, Sweat, and Tears that I think was post Al Cooper was the second version of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. So anyhow, yeah, we were getting attention paid to us. There were... There was a guy who had been a, and still was a professional radio guy in New Jersey. His name was Jerry White. Uh, Jerry White had done a folk music show on a station called WJRZ, which stood for Jersey. Um, At that time, a kind of of middle-of-the-road radio station, commercial radio station, but he did a folk music show a couple of nights a week. First time I ever heard Donovan on the radio. Um... You know, he played Dylan and Phil Oaks and people like that. And he did a, a live show in the summertime from Palisades Amusement Park where the ABC AM guys, Cousin Brucie and those guys, they would do live rock and roll shows from Palisades Amusement Park. And Jerry White did a live folk music show from Palisades Amusement Park. And one day at FMU, I got a phone call and this guy said, hi, this is Jerry White. That's like, really? Hi, Jerry. You know, because I was a fan of his. And he says, you guys are doing a you know, great thing. Can I come by sometime? And my theory was always that Jerry just wanted to, you know, connect with the hippie girls who hung out at the station. Sure. But he wound up doing a show for us for a short period as well. Yeah. Um, a lot of interesting people. Danny yeah. Fields, who worked at Electra at the time, and also one of the teen magazines, um, Tiger Beat or one of them. I don't, you know, he was, I can't remember now which one, but Danny, who later became the Ramones manager, mm-hmm. their first manager, Danny um, was was uh, very much involved at FMU and did his show fairly religiously for that year and a half that we were there. He would come out, uh, I guess, on Sunday, Sunday afternoons or evenings, maybe. And, and do the show. And this, so as we talked about in the last episode, this was all happening really quickly. And that was a, a that was a symptom of that moment in time that, that things were changing very quickly and happening very quickly in the world. And also you guys were young. So things, it's sort of like a year means more than, and mm. you were in college mm-hmm. and you were excited about things, right? Is right. that how you would characterize right. it? Yeah. yeah. I had dropped out of college at that point to work full time at the station. You did. How, <laughs> you'd only been in college full time for a uh, like, short while. Yeah. Uh, I was maybe a year, a year. about full a year time for a year. Yeah. yeah. And then as soon as this clicked into you were running things you knew that 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 was the only way you wanted to spend your time yeah exactly it's interesting to me because when we talked about when you interviewed me in episode two of this podcast you you were expressing amazement at at my stick-to-itiveness with my own career Uh and saying oh i could never do that but it's exactly what you did i mean you went into these you went into a place where you 
basically had no right to be and demanded to be in charge of it. And they said, you can't have it for the summer. And you said, but how can I have it? I'll raise the money. And you yeah. made it happen. But so it's, he, he didn't think of it as a career. Right. That's, well, that's, that's yeah. The, but he it was what of it he, as, as a passion. Mm-hmm. It was it was a pa- it was for fun, but it was also a passion. I really believed in it. Um, there was no money involved, really. As a as the program director, I got paid forty five dollars a week. We managed to convince them that out of that three, the thirty five hundred dollars that we raised for the first summer, they didn't really need all that money for for the rental fee on the transmitter, you know, we managed to convince them that the three of us who worked full time ran the the station manager, George, the production director, Mr. Fix-It, and me, the program director, um, that they should pay us. So uh, I think the general manager had always received like a stipend to, to manage the station, but ran was paid like 95 or or $100 a week to be the GM. And George and I each got $45 a week. Mm-hmm. And we moved in together. George had an apartment in East Orange, um, bigger than the little tiny room I was living in in East Orange. So, so we became roommates. We moved into the bigger apartment together. And, uh, but that was never, like, I never thought I was going to continue doing it commercially or professionally you just thought it was fun yeah and when we signed off in in september of 69 it was like okay you know that's it this is over the 60s are over um this kind of radio is never going to stand a chance anywhere so the heck with it you know so the period we're talking about was may 68 through september 69 yeah that's crazy yeah and 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 the whole world, you know, changed right. and, and erupted. And and in the middle of the summer of '68, were was the uh, the Democratic uh, National Convention in Chicago in yeah. August of in August. of '68. So, Mom, how did you end up there? I had a passionate belief in democracy. And the democratic process. And how old? How old were you? I was twenty. So that's a good time to yes. feel that way about yes. things. Yes, um, my mom was very involved in the League of Women Voters, um, and I believed that the world, if not, you know, the country, but the world, could be changed through the democratic process. And there were a lot of liberal voices out there. We were in the middle of a terrible war. Um, Boys my age were being conscripted to go to this terrible war. Uh, it It was wrong. Everybody seemed to agree it was wrong, but nobody could figure out what to do about it. So I thought that changes could be made through the democratic process. There was a um, a candidate by the name of Gene McCarthy, who was very liberal. He was very um, idealistic. He was a, a senator from the Midwest, and he was also a published poet. Yeah, and who uh, for 
just to remind us who was president and who is about to become president. Lyndon Johnson had become president when JFK was assassinated in 63. Mm-hmm. Johnson was the vice president at the time. Um, and then he got elected. And then he got elected mm-hmm. to the presidency on, on his own in 64. And the, the war kept escalating. And in 68, the front runner for the Republican Party was Richard Nixon, who had been the vice president for uh, Eisenhower in the 50s and who had been also the governor of uh, the governor of California. No, no, something to do with California. Was he a senator? I don't remember now. I can look it up. Yeah. So anyhow, the, and who was the front runner? The front runner the for the Democrats. Well, the Democrats were kind of they were kind of scattered. They were all over the well, place. Was, but Hubert Humphrey. It was Lyndon Johnson, and then he stood down. Yeah. Because he could have run. He could for have another run. term. Yeah. Right. Because his first partial term was not an elected term. But he was. He was totally um, wrapped up in becoming perceived as the villain responsible for the Vietnam War. Nixon was point. Nixon was a senator, a California senator, senator, okay, and a and a member of the House of Representatives from that California. was early mm-hmm. before he became vice president. He mm-hmm. was, yeah. So yeah, Johnson said so, no. Thank so you. So Johnson had Johnson was of course very instrumental. In 65, passing the Civil Rights Act, um, you know, which was a very liberal thing. He was a, a true old school Southern liberal Democrat, you know, which meant that he had a lot of conservative aspects to him. But he also had the wisdom to know when to do the right thing like he did with the Civil Rights Act. But he got totally flummoxed by the war and he became the person who we protested against hey hey lbj how many kids did you kill today was one of the big chants when we when we would demonstrate so he was he resigned and and not resigned but but he he said he wasn't going to run again in in 68. And the outcome of this election was that Nixon got elected. Yeah. This was the beginning of Nixon. Right. And I'm sorry, who was the Democratic frontrunner? I was looking at my phone. Well, Humphrey. Humphrey. Humphrey was the, the main guy, Hubert Humphrey. And then there were a whole bunch of other people who were running. One of them who stood a chance was McCarthy. And so you, McCarthy did... He it wasn't a totally crazy candidate. He did have a real campaign. He had he was a serious pr- candidate. It was a snowball's chance in hell. But he, you and so but you felt strongly. So you ended up working for his campaign. I I ended up working for his campaign in New Jersey, and when they sent the New Jersey staff to the convention. They needed a support staff to go with them. And your your intention in working with him, you just felt that this was you believed in democracy. You believed in in the electoral process. You felt this is the guy who I want to support, and this is meaningful 
to put my energy here. Exactly. It felt rewarding to you. Exactly. Even though he wasn't going to win. Of course, there's always hope. Right. Well, the, the wild card that we're neglecting to mention here is um, Robert Kennedy, John's brother, who was undergoing his own sort of transformation from being his brother's hard-nosed attorney general to becoming um, this saintly figure of the left who was assassinated in that spring. This is when I say that so much happened that year. In April, Martin Luther King was killed. In June, a week or so after that Memorial Day weekend, when we started the FMU thing full time, Kennedy was killed in California, Robert Kennedy. And suddenly now everything was up for grabs in the Democratic Party because Johnson wasn't going to run. Kennedy looked like he was. It seemed like be Kennedy was going to. Yeah, run. it kind of seemed like he was going to be the guy to get the nomination. Um, and. And that left Hubert Humphrey as the sort of standard bearer of uh, a certain kind of Democratic Party liberalness. And it was was the vibe in your community that this was disappointing <laughs> that you were yeah. left with this sort of the second <laughs> choice. I did, well, he wasn't the guy you would have picked, Humphrey. Well, no. No, no, <laughs> no, not. I mean, no. in retrospect, he would have it would have been better for the country probably to have Humphrey as president there, than Nixon. But he was he was way down on my list. Yeah. Right. It wasn't he wasn't even on my list. And to set the stage further, just a little bit, Chicago was being run by Mayor Daley, who had run Chicago for, I believe, several decades mm and had a reputation for taking the city as his own personal, his own personal... Uh, kingdom, his, like, his a, kingdom. like a fiefdom. Yeah. And... Iron hand. He mm -hmm. ruled Chicago with an iron hand. Mm -hmm. And he was definitely the party Democrat. And he was going to show the world how things are done right. He was a Democrat. He was a Democrat. And he was going to prove that there was a right way to run a city and there was a right way to run the city when these crazy hippies were running rampant. And um, he was a law and order guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as plans became known for the left wing, a coalition of left wing entities had decided to get together in Chicago during the Democratic Convention to protest the war and to protest politics in general. Um, as it became known that this thing was going to be a big turnout and as the yippies were being invented by Abby Hoffman and, and, and others, um, it looked like there was going to be a certain kind of anarchy, a spirit of anarchy in, in Chicago, Daly 
just put his foot down and said, this is not going to happen in my city. So even before anyone got yeah, there, there before, was this feeling oh, of something's going to go down. Yeah, yeah. He, he just, he, you know, it was, it was like, it, it was as natural as uh, a cloudy day causes, you know, brings rain. Uh, that if if the left wing was going to go to Chicago, Daly and the left wing were going to clash. And what ultimately happened was this the classic phrase of the of the late twentieth century: "The whole world is watching." Became the the phrase of the moment because it was all being televised. The conventions in those days were televised, as they used to say, from gavel to gavel, meaning from the early morning or late morning when the convention would start until early the next morning when the day's thing would finally close. Television, all three of the major networks, would show it. So, and, yeah. and, you know, they would they would uh, disrupt all of their primetime programming and all of their daytime programming. So that was the only thing that was really on television was, were the conventions. Mm-hmm. This was back in the 50s and 60s. Nowadays, you know, they show a couple of the major speeches and that's about it. Mm-hmm. So anything that was going to go on. Everyone was going to see it. Everybody was going to see it. So, Mom, when you... You volunteered to go. They said we need people to go to the convention. Did you volunteer? It was a it was a paid job. Okay, because it was as a a support service. We were putting out a daily newspaper to our delegates from New Jersey, explaining to them what was going on and the politics behind what was going on each day, mm-hmm. in the hopes that. We would get them to cast their votes to McCarthy. I have a question. How did your parents feel about your going to Chicago? Did they support it? I mean, I know yeah. I know that Rita was. Yeah. My mother took me shopping for an appropriate dress Aww. that actually was very inappropriate. Oh, really? But, <laughs> but yeah. What How was so? it? Yeah, what was the dress? How so? It was, It first of all, it was white. Second of all, it was crocheted, so it was sort of semi sheer. <laughs> it was, it probably, I mean, I don't remember how long it was, but in those days, the skirts were pretty short. So Aww. that was your professional outfit. Yes, what would have been appropriate would have been jeans and a t shirt, but that wasn't on <laughs> mm. somehow that, yeah. No, my mom, my mom took me to, to buy a, a dress. How long were you in Chicago total? What's What was the time frame of the trip? Uh, probably a week. So you got there, and you and they had an office set up that you went and worked at. Right. The, the office was in one of the main hotels where all the uh, delegates were being housed. And we were actually, we were being housed in a private home. Mm-hmm. They opened their homes to support staff Mm -hmm. in the city or in the suburbs it was it was in the city Mm -hmm. and what was the work that you were doing in the office what kind of what kind of business was was happening there uh we were putting together a newsletter yeah and then we were making sure it got distributed but i was i was involved in in putting together the newsletter 
And what happened? <laughs> well, I think um, a lot of the, these questions that you have can be answered by this recording. Well, I just I want to because I, I want to assume that uh, someone listening might not know anything about what happened oh, okay. that summer. And okay. I, so I just want to set up a little bit mm-hmm. of of why this what what happened that week in your life. So, yeah, you so, can. It, in general, what happened was 100,000 people showed up in Chicago. Now, also to put this in a little bit of perspective, it was not unusual on any given weekend day in any major city to have 10,000 people march down the main roads of, of major cities. There, was, there were anti-war marches. There were sing-ins. There were beings. Um, Central Park was every weekend had a a concert, an impromptu concert. So gatherings of people were quite common. Sometimes with political purposes and sometimes just for fun, just to gather. Right. So I don't know what the the actual number of people that showed up, but 100,000 people showed up in Chicago who had no business being there on top of the people who had business. And there were planned, I mean, we can maybe call them anarchists. I mean, they didn't call themselves anarchists, but planned events by the yippies, by this, that they were going to do these things that were intentionally, if not disruptive, at least intended to draw attention to these other issues. The yippies... Well, the yippies were... Um, were going to elect a pig. Yeah, they, they were going to nominate, nominate a, pig. a pig. The yippies were a political party. The Youth uh, International, International party, party was what YIP, Youth International Party, the yippies. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was Abby Hoffman's delightful sense of humor. And the yippies were going to Chicago to nominate a pig... Um, Phil Oaks and Allen Ginsberg and some others went out to a, a farm uh, outside of Chicago and actually bought the pig, who was named Pegasus. And, Pegasus. and they brought Pegasus. You know, you can go online and, and, and find pictures of them. They brought Pegasus into Chicago, into the park. What was it, Grant? What's the name of the park in Chicago? It's where um, Obama gave his big acceptance speech, the... The night that he was elected, yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure it's Grant Park. Grant Park, it's. But they had permits, and that's yeah. really important to note. They had permits for these gatherings. And uh, Pegasus was a 140-pound hog. <laughs> On August 23rd, 1968, he was nominated for president of the United States yeah. as a theatrical gesture by the Youth International Party. Mm-hmm. Campaign, the categories on Wikipedia, campaign for U.S. president, press conference and arrests, trial. This is good. You can do a lot more research on Pegasus on the Internet. So, uh, yeah, there were all kinds of planned events that we had. We, I wasn't there, that they had permits for. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, in the middle of this, the police got crazy. Well, there were too many. I mean, what mom is describing, there were too many people for it to stay organized. It was a hot summer. There were more people than they expected. People were sleeping in the park. And I believe that that's where the problem started was there were no permits to sleep in the park. 
People didn't have places to stay. And the police became extraordinarily violent. They were belligerent and then violent. They, they, they were violent. And they became—it wasn't just with the, with the people out in the park or protesting in the streets. It, there was actually these elements of, of um, conflict in, on the f- convention floor— you know, there would be people who were delegates who were coming to the floor who were being challenged and not allowed to come on the floor. There was some famous news guy who was like hit over the head by the cops on live television and everybody saw it, you know. And then when the police finally did riot and it was the police that rioted, not the people, but the police went crazy, which is what your mother experienced. Uh the whole world saw it. I mean, what's really fascinating is I feel like activism now is so based, is based on the internet, is based on Twitter, that, that there's this sense of being able to communicate live to communities and that that's been such a big part of, of current political movements. And it's almost like the fact that it was the, that it was the only thing on TV, it was like a de facto internet or something. It was instant. (laughs) You know what I mean? It was instant information Mm. to everyone that was accessible to everyone Mm -hmm. in a way that I feel like they almost didn't know enough to censor. Yeah, right. Because this, I mean, nothing like this had ever happened before. No, this was, this was something very, very different. Then, so it wasn't it, there wasn't even time to suppress information because it wasn't even clear how powerful it was that everyone could see what was happening. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. But to the organizers, to the Abby Hoffmans and, and those organizers, it was powerful. They did get it. They understood completely what they had done. And that in its way was the brilliance of it. Right. Because they're the ones who started the chant, the whole world is watching. Right. They understood. What the, what the what microphone that they had. That unleashed. They, had. they understood the media in a way that the, the older um, politicians and, you know, the people running the convention really didn't. Uh, right. I mean, this is the birth of, the, of what leads to Occupy Wall Street, right, is we're going to go in the park and elect a pig president. Mm-hmm. And it's going to then everyone on Twitter will be talking about, you know, this could happen now easily. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very advanced. I mean, it's so playful and it's so but it's also dealing, you know, they were very serious about mm-hmm. what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Now, as a result of this, as dad was saying, the um, the people who were involved couldn't get to where they needed to be. So if you needed to be in a particular hotel or in a particular place, you weren't able to get there. The police would stop you even if you had credentials. Um, At one point, and I'm not sure if this is on the tape that you're going to play, at one point our offices were raided by the police. And we were... While you were there. While we were there. And... One of our members, who was underage and had a, a beer, was arrested and carted away to Lord only knows where. Um, I was only held temporarily. I wasn't booked. Didn't you have an experience where you felt like you looked like a nice girl, so oh, they yeah. let you go? That was constantly my experience. 
I was got, that white dress that your mom bought for you. That's right. You're absolutely <laughs> right. I was so prissy looking. Because yeah. um, you didn't, yeah, you had made an effort because you weren't there just as a hanger on or whatever. You were there to work. You had a job. Exactly. So you were making an effort to look like a respectable young person and not just be, you weren't like a crazy hippie looking like a crazy hippie. Right. Yeah. And I wasn't. Right. You, that wasn't your thing anyway. Yeah. So back in New York, in addition to watching things on television, we were listening to radio, especially to WBAI, which was basically doing full-time coverage of the event. And FMU had become a sort of, um, we were like the cultural first cousin of BAI because we played music. So we were... In addition to being political, we were more fun mm -hmm. <laughs> in mm -hmm. a way, mm -hmm. you know, because BAI wasn't just Bob Fass late at night. It was a whole day long and evening long radio station with a big news department. Mostly and, talk. Yeah, mostly talk. And um, so there was a, a kind of a nice symbiotic relationship between the, the two stations. And you guys were like the little, the little yeah, sister. Yeah, we were the yeah. little sister, right. So... I was doing not only the overnight, but I was coming in earlier in the evening, like the prime time hours. And I freak, I don't know what day this this is, this recording, but it was probably like mid midweek. It was either Tuesday or Wednesday of that week, because usually by Thursday, I think, was when they actually made the nominations for the... The, How long had you been there, Mom? When do you know when this recording happened? No, I don't. The days were very long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it was. Do you remember how long you were there before things got crazy? Oh, it was a day or two before. It was. It was immediate. Pretty soon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, in addition to working together at the radio station, Mom and I were boyfriend and girlfriend. And there was a period of time, which you hear me refer to at the beginning of this recording, when I didn't hear from her for a day. And I'm very dramatic. And I say, oh, it's been 24 hours. You've been missing for 24 hours. There were no cell phones. Yeah, right. uh, yeah no cell phones. There was so. no way to contact one another. Right. So, I mean, that's it's a legitimate thing to say you were you were missing for a day. Um, Mom and I both have like very mixed feelings about listening to this recording. I, know, I think that's good because I sound like a pompous jerk, right? You know, and <laughs> and and mom, nothing. You know, so I made it. Uh, you know, it's my whole career well, <laughs> got started right no, here. No, <laughs> but um, but I protest. Mom, well, tell you tell how you feel about listening to yourself. Well, I have not actually listened to this exact portion that you're you're going to play but um it's painful so this is a recording of mom calling in from chicago and it's this is also in the museum of television and radio which is how we we have it right that well they, i you we gave it, it to them years ago and they and they um saved it from because it was on a reel-to-reel -reel tape yeah and, and they um managed to transfer digitally and mm -hmm. everything that you 
give to the museum winds up in the museum one way or another. Um, and they sent back digital recordings of, yeah. of, of these things. I've listened to it in the museum. We went when I was a kid, but I haven't heard it since then. Mm. Well, I just ask anyone who's listening to remember we were 20. Well, that's <laughs> what I think is fascinating. I mean, you were 20 and... Uh, well, let's not say let's not say okay. anymore. Yeah. Let's say things yeah. after. Let's okay. Just so it begins with me on the phone being like um, overwhelmed because it was totally unexpected that she was going to call. I was doing the show. There was music on, and um, she says, "Am I on the air?" And I said, "Well, I'm about to put you on the air, and then you'll you'll hear me put her on the air, but you'll hear the little bit of." of pre-actual on-air thing where we're just trying to... And you guys put, you guys recorded it. You you, you knew in that moment, you were like, this is going to be, let's record this. Yeah, we this knew whenever, whenever there was anything different or exciting or, you know, if there was a live performer on or something, we would, we would record it. And we recorded everything that we did because not only was was Freddie out there, but Dennis and and Rudnick and Frawley, the Cocaine Karma twins, were out covering it for the East Village Other, and they were very politically connected, so they knew a lot about the the Chicago politics, and so they were calling in with reports as well. So we were sort of actively involved, doing a kind of a secondary. Reportage to what BAI was doing um, in the main sphere of, of things. Oh, wow, so good to hear you. There's a, a demonstration. Yeah, well, they, you know. Right. They, you know, call and have you heard from Winnie yet? I said, no, you know. How many people? Oh, you know, a few, three, four, five. Oh, wow. People around here are boxing. Okay, George? Good. I refuse to go out on the street tonight, by the way, after all the things that happened. I'm staying at McCarthy headquarters. Staying at McCarthy headquarters? I, I, I'm not on yet, am I? Um, I'm about to put you on. Oh, okay, tell me when you do, so I don't make a complete ask. I'm putting you on. So I should mention here that Fred was known sometimes by her, her birth name, which was Winnie. Her name was Winifred. Um, so you'll hear me every once in a while call her Winnie rather than Fred because we hadn't completely gone over to the to the name change. So, uh... Now? Yes, you are now. Okay. So I'll tell you the whole... Well, first tell everybody who you are. Okay, I'm Winnie. You're Winnie, and uh, we're happy to hear from you. You've been, you've been missing for 24 hours. I'm in the, um, the lovely city of Chicago. It's a nice place to pass through, but I wouldn't want to visit here. Mm-hmm. And, no, I'll tell you, this, this morning we came down, and I was watching television, and we watched the Peace Plank. And when that was over, I was, uh, I was so depressed. So I just had, I figured I'll go out for a walk. And meanwhile, you know, alone in this big, ugly city. This is Wednesday afternoon? Is, it, is that what you meant by this morning? Yeah, is that, yeah. We're the Wednesday afternoon when they were, began voting on the peace mic, right. Okay. Right. Now, I forget what time they finished. Mm-hmm. I lose my... I think it was around 5.30 in the afternoon, our time, Eastern time, so it was probably it's around 5, 4.30 your time. Right. I yeah. think it was about 5, and now that you mention it, it was about 4.35. 
About 5 o'clock, I, I went out on the street, and I wasn't in Grant Park. I was on the sidewalk because I didn't have anybody with me. I, I wasn't with anybody, and I was kind of, you know, I was just completely out of it because I was very upset about the voting. So... All of a sudden, everybody who was in the amphitheater in Grant Park, they had a permit till 4 o'clock, by the way, to be there. Right. And I was still standing there, and I saw many, many people all from the amphitheater running across the bridge, and people were joining them. And then all of a sudden, I saw all these people surging towards me, and I just stood there the whole time. So thousands of people were around me, and hundreds of police, hundreds upon hundreds of police, and then all of a sudden I saw the police throw something and everybody was walking around coughing and sneezing and holding their eyes and holding their nose. And I just stood there and I couldn't figure out what was the matter with all these people. And everybody was running around doing these strange things. So I stood there for about five or ten minutes. You, you always were a little naive, weren't you? A little dumb. <laughs> yeah. And um, I stood there for about ten minutes and I finally realized that I was gagging and crying. And... Um, about to drop there. So I decided to go into the um, Hilton, which, by the way, I do have business in. You know, mm -hmm. it's not like I'm somebody off the street who walks in there. Yeah, well, maybe we better explain for those people who don't know what you're doing in Chicago that you're working... I don't know really what you're doing, but you're with the New Jersey delegation, uh, the McCarthy people, right? Right. In the New Jersey delegation right. uh, as a general uh, uh, run around and... Uh, uh, well, actually, what we've been doing is publishing an informative paper for the New Jersey delegation. Planted, didn't do much good, did it? Planted very highly towards McCarthy, mm -hmm. but an important paper with all sorts of good information. And you had... Uh, a permit or whatever to be on one floor of the, uh, the hotel, correct? The Hilton Hotel. In addition to being in the lobby, mm -hmm. which is open under normal circumstances. Right. So I started over the Hilton and I was stopped immediately. And I was told that only people who lived there, press, and um, delegates could go in. So I figured I'm not going to fight it. Here I am choking to death. Were you wearing any sort of a pass or identification or anything? Oh, well, I had, you know, my regular thing. But yeah. That was it. Mm -hmm. But I don't live there or anything. And, and one kid, well, that's another story I'll tell you that's about later. One kid who lived there um, couldn't get in tonight because he didn't have his pass with him. And he couldn't get to a phone. They wouldn't let him phone somebody to come down and okay him. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's another story. So well, there are lots of stories like that. There was uh, uh, a pressman, I, I've forgotten his name now, somebody working for one of the major networks, uh, you know, a name that we'd recognize if I could, re I'm having difficulty remembering lots of things tonight. I've been up for two days. Uh, he was having difficulty getting onto the floor because his credentials supposedly weren't in order. Now, here, here's a guy that everybody knows. thrown off the floor. Yeah, right. We, uh, we watched that happen. I mean, there are a lot of goodies going around. I mean, this is... When you hear the end of this 50-minute this, uh, story, I have to tell you, you'll be just so amazed. Interrupt mm. me when you have to give an ID. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> so, I finally left. And meanwhile, I hadn't had anything to eat all day, and I figured I'll go back to the hotel, and I'll get a little cheered up. So I went back to the hotel, and I stood there and watched for about five minutes the nonsense on the television about, let's see, who's going to nominate who. And I got sick, so I walked out again. I guess it was about half hour later. And I left, and I, I figured, okay, I'll do one of two things. I'll either go to Abigail's, 
which is um, the McCarthy uh, shop in the Hilton. Very, it's a very nice place. Everybody just sits and watches television and boos at the right times and cheers at the right times. I figured I'll either go to Abigail's or I'll find a, a nice little demonstration going on, which I'll join. So I started walking up the block, got on Michigan Avenue. The Palmer House is on Wabash Street, which is one block from Michigan Avenue. Got to Michigan Avenue, and this man stops me. And I noticed he had about four cameras hanging around his neck, and he had a Con Life Press pass hanging around his neck. Everything has to hang around your neck in this place. Yeah. Uh, let me just interrupt you for a second. Were you wearing any kind of uh, special clothes? Like, did you have on, uh, you know, a McCarthy hat or, uh, you know, a, a bandana or anything like that? I had a McCarthy button on my clothes. I had a Star Humphrey button on, and I had a very small McCarthy button on my pocketbook. I never wear a lot of um, a lot of things, you know, because it's easier to disguise yourself as, as was necessary later in the day. Mm-hmm. So this man stops me, a Time Life reporter stopped me and said, where are you going? And I said, well, I was just going for a walk. She says, well, you better go in the other direction. So I said, what are you talking about? He says, it's the ugliest, most grotesque thing I ever saw up there. Don't go up there, you'll get killed. So, you know, that's all he had to tell me. So I said, well, where are you going? He says, I'm going to get more equipment. So he says, are you going to the Hilton? So I said, yes. He says, just watch yourself. So with that, about three or four blocks up was, I'd say about five or 10,000 people, somewhere in between there, probably closer to 10,000 people in the middle of the street, being led by someone on a bullhorn, saying, keep calm, stick together, don't let them bother you, going on and on and on, very what, calmly. What time was this? This was about eight. In other words, it, the, the, it had grown dark by now. Not quite. It was still, it was still pretty light. Mm. Okay. And I kept walking, and there were people on the outside shouting and screaming. One girl was going crazy shouting pigs, which is one of the big slogans out here. Mm-hmm. The other slogan is F-U-L-B-J. Only they're not saying, other oh, people here think I should tell you, you know, should blow the station off the air. Well, uh, there's, uh, there's been a lot of that going on in, in the New York area tonight uh, in a number oh. of places, so uh, and, uh, you know, don't worry about it. And F.U. Mayor Daly and things like that. Mm-hmm. There was lots of screaming and lots of going on, and I, I still didn't know what was happening until I walked a little bit further, and I saw about 10 feet from the first demonstrators who were down on their knees with their hands crossed on their chest, the first row of demonstrators. Ten feet from them were two rows of cops with their clubs. And about every five minutes, they ran up and would charge the demonstrators, swinging and arresting. They carried maybe three or four people off every time they charged. Mm-hmm. So... This I, is The scene you're describing, then, is, is what... Uh, We've been seeing on the uh, the three major networks, or at least we had been yes. seeing practically all night. Then yes, right. Um, I saw it before. I saw the reruns of the of the um, nonsense. Then I walked up a little further, and by this time I was very very upset by the whole thing. So I crossed. Oh, I decided I was going to go into the Hilton. I walked up, and in front of me were like a row of policemen. So I said, "Could I please cross?" And 
The gentleman said to me, no, you may not. And the man next to him said, get along, girly, or, or something like that. So I said, well, I'd, I'd like to get to the Hilton, if I may. You know, I, I was like, um, it made me sick the way I had to act to these people. It, it just made me sick that I had to be so humble and, and lick their shoes and have them be insolent to me, you know, any minute knowing that they could club me and arrest me and, and give any old reason and it would be valid to Mayor Daly and anybody else. And it just, the whole thing made me sick. So finally they told me I had to go across the street. Um, they were being terribly nasty about the whole thing. There was one man in the line who was nice to me, by the way. I should mention that. I don't, think he beat, I don't think he beat on the demonstrators any less than anybody else, but he was nice to me. Um, so I walked across the street, and I, I couldn't go any further. I was just watching what was going on, and I was just so upset that I couldn't move. And... Let um, me let me interrupt for a second. Okay. This is WFMU, Annie Starnes in New Jersey, at 91.1 FM, and we're talking with Winnie Bauman, who is in Chicago right now, uh, safe and sound. Where are you now? At the hotel? Uh, I'm at Palmer House Hotel. You're at Palmer House Hotel. Okay. Um. So, any. Um. Oh, so I was just standing there by a tree, and I was terribly upset. And um, some the people, I don't know if you, you've heard that there are people here, volunteers here, uh, who were wearing white robes mm -hmm. and crosses on their robes. Many yeah, they've, they've been in evidence on all the films also. Right, and they don't get hit, as far as I know. The I've, police I've seen them get hit. Well, I haven't. Mm -hmm. I've been lucky. Yeah. So one of them came up to me and asked me if my eyes were all right, and I told him it wasn't my eyes that were hurting. And uh, he was very, very nice. He asked me if I, I wanted anything or anything, and I thanked him. A couple of people came up to me, were very nice. And I just stood there kind of immobile at the whole thing. It was just so amazing. Now, around you, were there beatings going on at, at this point? No, I was to the side. Actually, there, there were like three groups of people in the center of the street. Actually, it was very reminiscent of the, of the New York March, only it was just the opposite. The, in the New York March, uh, uh, two years ago, the big peace march, mm -hmm. in the New York March, the demonstrators were in the, in the street and the police were on the outside protecting them. Mm -hmm. And in this, the police were on the inside clubbing them. Yeah. I couldn't help but, but see the comparison. So there were the people in the march, there were the sympathizers on the sidewalk, and then there were the people in the park. I was in Grant Park, which is like um, 20 feet from where the beatings were going on. And they kept being pushed back further and further. They were pushed back maybe three blocks or so. And I was just standing there, and I got quite cold. So I left for a while. And uh, I was standing around in the, other, in, uh, the park for a long time because I found I couldn't get into Hilton no matter what. They were only allowing people who lived there and the president. They weren't allowing delegates at all or anybody else. Um, in other so words, I, you, you had no work to do what? tonight. You, you didn't have any work to do tonight in the Hilton. No. Well, I had some things I could have done, but, mm -hmm. which I guess lived without me. I'm, <clears throat> I don't live there, so I couldn't get in, and I'm not a press. Mm -hmm. 
even though I do work for FMU, but it doesn't count. Uh, so I was just standing around in the park, and it got to be around 10 of 11, and I thought, well, I better get back to the hotel. People are going to worry about me because they, you know, they can hear all this nonsense going on. By this time, oh, many of the demonstrators in the street were for poor people from Michigan, and they let the poor people go to the amphitheater. So it started to break up after they had like six rows of uh, National Guard with unsheathed bayonets and two rows of policemen. And then on the sides of the street, there were policemen all over the place. It was really disgusting. So I was just, I decided to leave because I didn't want anybody to worry too much about me and I still hadn't eaten all day. And I thought it was time. So. I started to leave, and I started to walk out of Grant Park at 10 of 11, and all of a sudden, at the end of the park, I was all by myself, and I faced 200 policemen walking in a long line. It was the curfew time, mm. or 10 minutes before the curfew time. I hadn't even thought of this. I thought of it at 9 o'clock or something, but not at 11. And they were coming at me, swinging their clubs. And I panicked. I didn't know what to do. All I knew is that I had to keep calm and I had to walk because this is what everybody was shouting all night. Keep together, keep calm, and walk. Mm -hmm. Now, were there, so, there were other people in the park around you, weren't there? There were other people in the park, but there was nobody around me. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't anybody, like, within 100 feet. Yeah. And there were very few people. In this, see, in this part of the park, I had already walked out of the part where the mainstream of action was. Yeah. And I was walking towards the Palmer House. And these people, these policemen were just running towards, were walking towards me. And I didn't know what to do. So I started to walk on the outside. I thought I could get around them. And then they spread out. And I was so lucky. I didn't know how this happened. About 10 kids started running towards the outside. So all the policemen on that side ran after them, swinging their clubs, and I just walked through mm. until they left. I don't know, you know, how it happened that I was so lucky, but that's what happened. Then I, I walked back to the, um, I walked back to the Palmer house, and um, there were security checks outside and everything. And then I went to get something to eat in the restaurant next door. And there were people there calling the um, calling the uh, the um, lawyers. What is that called? The American Civil Liberties Union. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't get a, they couldn't get a hold of their friends in jail. They couldn't find out where they are. They couldn't do anything. It was just um, you know the whole thing was so bad. And they started asking me things, you know, like how the scene was over there. And I started to tell them, and like everybody I met. In, in all of Chicago, all the kids have been so wonderful. They, they said to me, you know, like, just be careful because you're alone. And, you know, stay out of the street and things like that. They're just so wonderful. The only nasty people in here are not kids, I'm telling you that. You know, I haven't seen one bad kid. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very unusual, yeah. I would say. So... After that, I came back to the office, and um, we got a call from the Massachusetts delegation, and they said, would we please come up and help collect bail? Mm -hmm. And this time Is, do, you have, do you have much more to go? Because we're sort of running out of tape, so oh, try okay. to speed it up a little bit. Okay. So we went up, and we got these boxes, and we started collecting bail for the kids who had been in jail on the floors. And 
we in the Palmer House. Right. Yeah. And we were collecting bail, and then somebody told us it was illegal. So, okay, we stopped collecting bail, and we went to the um, Massachusetts delegation's room. And we were there about five minutes watching the reruns of this afternoon's Great Happenings. Mm-hmm. And in walks these three burly men, plain clothes men, and insist upon seeing our identification. We were in a private room, mind yeah. you. So I took out my wallet and showed them my identification, and one could refuse to show it to them unless he saw their credentials. And they said he was under arrest. They arrested one kid also because they found him um, collecting money. Now these these were plainclothes city policemen? or yeah, city policemen. I think. I, don't, I have no idea. I didn't see their credentials. Mm-hmm. They, they, they had no warrant, did they? No. Mm-hmm. That, that's... The kid says, um, where's your warrant? You can't arrest me if you don't have a warrant. And they said, uh, we don't need a warrant. You're under arrest. Mm-hmm. Um, they were terribly nasty. They were, I, I couldn't believe it. I was very upset by the whole thing. They, they um, arrested another kid because he was 18 and he had one beer in a private room. They, so they had arrested about half the people in the room. There were only about seven of us there. They arrested three people. Just out of no place. They just barged into the room and arrested him. Then, so we didn't know what to do, so we came back to our room and tried to call. We locked ourselves in, and we tried to call someone of authority because there was no one of authority with us. And the phone went dead. Mm-hmm. So I was, this whole thing was... The phone went dead. This is interesting. Uh, um, I hope the girl who called before is still listening. A girl called, I guess it was 45 minutes to an hour uh, ago, she received a, a phone call from a friend of hers in Chicago. Uh, you know, the girl was like in the middle of all this uh, in, in the park calling from a payphone. And the girl in Chicago was, you know, completely hysterical. And she just, you know, had called this girl in, in on the East Coast here, I mean, like her best friend. And, uh, you know, she heard noise all around the place. And then all of a sudden the phone went dead. And this is like the third or fourth, uh, you know, incident of this that I've heard of tonight. Oh, it's, it's, it's fairly common. Mm. The phone was dead for like a half an hour. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. So I was feeling all, all sorts of paranoia. And then the kids from our, from our New Jersey delegation finally walked in, and he said that through some sort of um, politics, they got him out. I don't know how. You know, by licking their shoes or something. It was, it was really ridiculous. He said that they had to apologize for him being nasty. They had to uh, say they were unaware of the law and apologize for doing it. And the whole thing was so bad, we had to take off all our McCarthy, um, everything that, that had McCarthy on it, we had to take off. We were you were ordered to do this? Um, not not by the powers that, that be in the city, but by the powers that be in McCarthy. Mm-hmm. And, um, for what reason? Well, because they knew who we were and they would get us for anything. Yeah, right. At this okay. point. And paranoia was just completely setting in. It was impossible. Well, so sure. right now everything looks fairly calm. Um, Do you have any idea what's going on in the city now? Is there anything going on in Lincoln Park? Because we've been getting uh, vague rumors about a, a big gathering in Lincoln Park and a confrontation with the National Guard. Well, I don't know about that. I do know that, that they're being allowed to sleep in Grand Park. People are being allowed to sleep in Grand Park. Yes. Well, that's something we didn't know. Yes. This is something quite new. This is something as of an hour ago. Mm-hmm. And also, there is a 
McCarthy people demonstration in the Hilton. Mm -hmm. All the McCarthy people. And uh, as I said before, it's impossible to get into the Hilton. Yeah. So these are people who are in the Hilton. These are uh, the hardcore, these are the important people. And they were booing the Humphrey people as they came in. But you haven't heard anything now. It's it's what ten after three in Chicago now. Yeah. Ten after four here. You've heard nothing about a a confrontation in uh, uh, in Lincoln Park. I can ask the other people here. Uh, yeah, do it quickly okay. because. Uh, confrontation in Lincoln Park. Confrontation in Lincoln Park. Is there one? Yeah. Is it open? Peter. Is there a confrontation in Lincoln Park now with the National Guard? Um, Lincoln Park, no. Um, the authority says there are some people in Lincoln Park, but they started moving out. The, the scene is Grant Park. Mm-hmm. Unless, you know, unless there's something new. Yeah, well, this was... Uh as of a half an hour ago. No, it wasn't. It was much longer. You know. Oh, well, um, the person I just asked just came in an hour ago. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, how long will you be staying out there now? Do you know? Oh, I'll probably be leaving tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning? Yeah. But does that mean Friday morning or Thursday morning? Which, which? What's, oh, t- this morning. It's already this morning. It's yeah, this morning. I'm leaving. Um, unless I may decide to stay on if something grotesquely unreal happens. Yeah. In which case, I'll either take a plane back or I have a ride this weekend. Mm-hmm. So one way or the other, I don't know. It's not that important, I guess. Anyhow, I'll probably make it up back for my show on Sunday. <laughs> well, you guys are all lucky. Okay. Okay. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll come and talk to you sometime mm-hmm. on the air. Right. Okay. All right. Well, now, if uh, you know, if you stay tomorrow, and uh, you know, t- or today, you know, when the sun comes up, and if uh, if things should develop, and you're in the middle of them, you know, don't hesitate to call, uh, okay. no matter what time it is, and, and uh, you know, let us know. Okay. It's very hard to find a phone in the middle of things. Yeah, that, the that's uh, what we understand. The only place where there are phones are in the hotels, and you can't get into in the hotels when any action is happening mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. So it's, it's really a strange situation. Okay, wait. Okay? Yeah, take care of yourself. Okay, I'll be Okay, home, right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. So there you have it. You're so cute. <laughs> <laughs> cute. I know, no, you're very, you're both very serious, but from my perspective, it's very really? adorable. Oh, my yeah. God. So serious we are, aren't we? I mean, I mean, rightfully so. It was a very serious moment. But I'm surprised at how, what a, a basically good mood you sound like you're in. I mean, you're you're a sunny person, but here you've been like threatened with clubs and unsheathed bayonets and tear gas and everything else, and you're still kind of bubbly and upbeat. And it's three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, and. I lived through it. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> of course I was upbeat. I guess. And I just sound like I'm an imitation Bob Fass, and I just sound so stupid, like I'm not... I, th- I think you're just being self-conscious. Yeah. No, you're both... I... Obviously, it's hard to listen to yourself yeah. at well, that 20. was that was recorded uh, in um, 
August of 1968, as it was aired live on WFMU uh, at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And we were 20 years old. And we were 20 years old, and I was the doing the show, and Freddie was out in Chicago as uh, working for the, the delegates for McCarthy. I love Chicago. how much stronger your Jersey accent was, Mom. Isn't that weird? Mm-hmm. It. It's really troubling. It's so funny. I don't hear it. I heard I'm, it. I'm, on oh, the yeah. recording? I'm, no, I didn't notice yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. But it's I'm, very strong. It's it's really I mean, troubling. your voice is very, sounds very young, but even more than that. It's, yeah. It's <laughs> regional. Yeah. <laughs> it's. <laughs> yes. So and dad's moments. I mean, you have a co- like you were you were always a little naive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I, yeah, you know. as opposed to me, and man <laughs> of the world. Can you? Uh, can How you long is the story? Speed it, up? Yeah, speed it up. We're about to run Running out of tape. Running out of tape. Do you have to talk so long? <laughs> and uh, you I know. mean, it was a kind of a rambling story, but it seemed like no. it was a rambling experience. Yeah. Yeah. When you were having trouble. Summing it up, it was also three in the morning. Mm-hmm. I I think that's those are the things that trouble me most about that recording: my Jersey accent and my verbosity. Aww. So, uh, well, I mean, but, but also that things weren't happening in a linear way where you could say that. I mean, it's it was such an experience of I don't know. Then I was here. Then I was there. Then I couldn't get in here. Yeah, it's hard to sum it up. I believe countries have been founded in less time than that story well, I took. I find it fascinating. <laughs> well, and, and as Kate said, you must have been exhausted. You'd probably been you up hadn't, for days. As we heard many so. times, you had not eaten. I, had I love also eaten. that yes, the, you're yes. like, look, this is look. how dire the situation is. I had not eaten. <laughs> and then five minutes later, you know, And I still I had not eaten. eaten. <laughs> That's the man. And he was Thread. coming at me with a bayonet. And, and I, I hadn't eaten. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't believe this day I've had. Really? <laughs> and I hadn't eaten. But there, <laughs> I mean, but there was something you, I mean, the story you tell there about the guy, the reporter saying, don't go down there. I mean, what you don't. What you then did, you went down there. Right. You weren't going to. And what was your instinct about that idea of I'm going down there? Was it I want to see what's happening with my own eyes? Was it I'm not going to I'm here. I'm not going to miss out on any of this experience. Was it I can help it be a part of it? What what was your instinct? All of all of those things. I was scared to death. And to this day, I don't like to be in a crowd of any kind. Um, as a result of that experience, but I was fascinated. I would not, I would not be stopped. I felt... Yeah, you had such a strong reaction that even these guys gently, I mean, maybe not gently, but even these guys saying, girl, you can't go over here. I mean, I love your outrage at that. How dare they? I was outraged and I felt... I felt my my rights were being trampled upon. And as I said, I had such a strong belief in the system. That's why I was there. I wasn't one of these anti-American or or anti-political system. 
I had a strong belief in the system. You were there to work within the system. You weren't there to take it down. That wasn't your right. motivation for being there. So you you had this outrage as someone who's saying, look, I'm, I'm part of the system. I'm working within the rules almost. And how dare you? How, you're not even going to let that happen? Right. Mm-hmm. And the, I was working with a group of people on this project, but I was literally... Alone. Yeah. yeah that, why that were you walking around alone? That you were out there alone. That's, yeah. Why? Why? I mean, it was so. I, I can't explain it. Yeah. I've never been one to go out on my own. Mm. I can't explain why I did that. I think, I mean, unlike a lot of people who were out there, I had an interest in the counterculture. I had one foot in the counterculture at the same time that I had a belief in the political system. Um, so I think I was drawn to the other things that were going on and I was fascinated by it. And perhaps the other people weren't. Mm. They, right. They, they wanted to stay in the office. They, they weren't going to go out in the street. Right. Right. And as the end of the story, if anybody listened through the end, <laughs> displayed, there was no safe place. There was no place to hide. Mm-hmm. You, even in the office, a plainclothesman could come in if that's what they were. Mm-hmm. So those people who chose to hide were not safe either. But I think I was... I think I was drawn somehow to this other thing that was going on. Mm. Like a witness to history. Somehow. I, I, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Or I was crazy. And you know. remember that moment that you describe where it was just you in the park against yeah. a phalanx of yeah. dude. Well, did, yeah. you, did you see? Did you look over and see her? She just, was. Yeah, you remember. They were literally. They were walking in a line swinging, swinging as they, they were swinging their billy clubs. And she as was, they Freddie walked. was miming it as she said it on the tape. We looked over and saw Freddie miming the, and it the was, gesture. It must be something they do. It's just like, don't. We're coming. Right. This is the machine coming at you. Mm-hmm. Right. And I I was towards the left side of them, but they were coming directly at me. And then some kids started running and they just all went after those kids. Mm-hmm. And I and remember you literally it. slipped through. I just kept walking. I, I mentioned to you the other day that I felt invisible. It's so fascinating. It's that's what it sounds like. Yeah, that it was just you could you almost weren't even there. Yeah. You were just witnessing it. Right, right. And In so many ways, that's how I felt. I have a um, an important question. Yes. Which is when you finally did get something to eat. <laughs> what was it? What did you eat? What did you yeah, eat? What did you, you said she went to a. Didn't she say she went to a diner or something? Or like no, a, no, I oh. didn't go. I don't think I went to a diner. I mean, everything was. Well, there was a, a there was like a coffee shop in oh, the, the hotel, Abigail's yes. or something. Yeah, but that was that was like um, it uh, it was sort of like a coffee shop, uh, gift shop. Mm. It was set up by the McCarthy campaign. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you were supposed to hang out there. The McCarthy Democrats were supposed to hang out there and and sort of 
find like-minded souls. Um, so I don't know if I ate anything there. Actually, that is one you know, part of the that is one part of the story. I I don't remember. I, don't, I mean, there's so much build up to that. I know. What yeah. was she finally going to eat? I, I just well, <laughs> we'll have to take it on faith that I finally got something to eat. I don't think I think you would have known better than to call dad without having eaten anything. Well, but I certainly remembered that particular strain all day that food was no. You remember to be. being hungry that day. Not at this point, but I did then. <laughs> I mean, I I have gotten over it. Thank God. You recovered. What I can't what I can't fathom is why the phone call was as noisy as it was. I mean, I know we didn't put phone calls on the air as a regular thing, but and I know it was you know, fifty years ago or almost fifty years ago, but well, you know, it, it was like so noisy. Yeah. And, and yeah, it was a noisy connection, but I was not in a quiet place. Mm. I don't recall if this call was made from the house where we were staying as a group or whether it was made from one of the offices. Didn't you say I'm at Palmer House? Yes. That's what I thought. Yeah. But there were clearly other people in the office. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Probably a lot because it took me a few minutes to find out from everybody what was going on in Lincoln Park. Now, oh my God, I love that part. Yeah, mm-hmm. Lincoln, Lincoln Park. Park something having anything? Park? Anybody? Anybody? Anyone? Lincoln Park. Anyone? Nope. Lincoln Park. Park. <laughs> Vin says something's happening. <laughs> right, and the, the the authority. That's the funny thing about Dad is that. Well, I saw it on the news. Yeah, I, I've been up for <laughs> two days. So. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm really tired. What am I? <laughs> I've eaten, but I'm tired. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the second part of the question is: uh, it's almost time for dinner, isn't it? Yes, what are we gonna yes, eat? What are we, we gonna eat? <laughs> yeah, the whole we've learned from this recording. Yeah. Just make sure you don't get too hungry. It's important to eat. Well, I wanna say though, I mean, do you have a besides feeling embarrassed by it, Mom, do you have other feelings listening to that and remembering or the way you feel about that twenty year old version of yourself and that moment in, in her life listening to it? Well, I never lost the impact of that week. I've never forgotten the impact of that week. Um, And frankly, I was very struck when I watched you listening to it because you were hearing it just for the second time and you were, you were, uh, experiencing the impact of those emotions. Um, so, you know, I just feel it should be edited. That's, that's <laughs> <laughs> you, you, don't ha- you don't have an outside perspective. You feel very close to it. There, I, I feel close to the sound of it, mm-hmm. and I feel cl- very close to the experience, but I have carried the experience with me for my entire life. What did you feel, how do you feel like things changed for you after that about your political perspective or world perspective or your, do you, did you become more cynical or less cynical or less? I've, I've become much more cynical. Mm-hmm. Do you, and you but, think it started there? Oh, definitely. Definitely. But 
as I always say to you, I still have this basic belief in democracy. I still feel like we have to vote in every single election so that the bastards know we're watching them. Even if they're going to go ahead and do whatever they're going to do anyhow, at least they'll know the whole world is watching. Um, I'm, I'm much more cynical. I don't believe that I can somehow change the course of history on my own. Um, you know, so from that point of view, it, it definitely has changed. It changed it, me completely. And also the, the ability to be in crowds, the ability to uh, take on an organization like that. I, um, I don't feel I have the power that I did then, mm -hmm. which may have to do with youth, too. Right. I mean, you went into working for the McCarthy campaign feeling like it had personal significance and that also it was a political act. It was an important political act and you were a part of something. Absolutely. And that was the last time you worked for a campaign. That's right. Right. Let me ask you a question, Kate. Mm -hmm. Hearing your parents being their 20-year-old selves um, is a is a pretty unique experience, I think. I would love to have heard a recording of my parents when they were 20 years old, just going about their business and doing, you know, just to hear their voices. I mm -hmm. mean, n nowadays everybody's got everything on video and everything is recorded and, you know, it's it may be different now, but for people of my age and your age, there is still a connection back to pre-digital world. And I'm, I just wonder how you feel about seeing, hearing your parents at that age. Well, I just found it very endearing. I mean, maybe if you guys weren't still together, I wouldn't find it so <laughs> endearing because there's definitely some problematic dynamics happening there. <laughs> <laughs> but seeing right. as things turned out well, we, we worked some of those you, problems yeah. through. Yeah, it, I mean it's it's just very sweet. I think. Mm. I mean, you obviously, I mean, you do have a very cute dynamic, and obviously have a lot of affection for. I think maybe I'm just reading into it because I know that. Mm. But I, it's interesting to me also because. You both uh, had, I mean, you definitely had strong personalities at 20. There's, I mean, it makes sense to me that those were the people who you were. Mm. And I love mom, mom saying, I'll be back for my show on Sunday. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. we're not messing around. You know, this, these are, and I think it's fascinating that even as you were being condescending, you obviously had a lot of respect for mom that she was there. And it was exciting to you that she was there and that she was this. And I'm sure, you know, as your girlfriend, you were really proud of her that that she was there and a part of things oh, yeah. and in the middle of this. And and as a member of our FMU family, that we were represented by her, right. that we had somebody at three o'clock in the morning who was in Chicago and we were broadcasting it live on the radio and she was one of us. Right. You know, sure, a lot of pride in that. And I think that's 
really important because even as we, we talked about in the last episode, we were saying about the literary magazine and about the radio station that every you felt mom, like no matter what organization you were a part of, the women were second class citizens and it was the dudes were the star of the show. And I think it's important. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to both of you about this period in FMU is because you were you were very much not just like the girlfriend arm candy. I mean, you were involved in this. This was important to you and you were an important part of this community. And, and so even though it was unequal, it wasn't just like, Oh, my boyfriend has a radio station. I don't know what he does. You know, like, right. Don't, do you feel that way? I Absolutely. mean, not to put words in your no, mouth. No, no, it was, it was a community. And I think that's very well put. Uh, and, I was definitely an equal member of the community. Right. So uh, I think that's a very good point. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I think it's probably good that I didn't go into broadcast journalism as a career. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing that I love about it the most, actually, is it's like, okay, here's the woman who does the Winnie the Pooh show, and she's got this, like, very girly, cute voice, and she doesn't sound, you know, you wouldn't pick out this person as a badass. And now, and she's on the radio saying, and these cops had, these cops had the nerve to tell me, well, it was very, and you know, just like. They were very rude. They were very rude. Were, I was very distressed. I'm not even trying to get and that Jersey accent. a little like. They were, they were very rude. They were rude. very rude. <laughs> they were very rude. And it's like. I wasn't going to listen to Deb. She's, she's like, this is a badass. She's not taking this. I'm from Jersey. She's from Jersey. This is not how we yeah, treat we don't, people. We don't. I got to get to my hotel. Yeah. Get out of my way. I belong mm. there. Excuse me. Officer, over the uh, yeah, walking here, walking. (laughs) So that I kind of love that you were the representative. That it wasn't someone, some dude saying, "Oh, here's what's happening." It's very that this what you're very much a young woman out there being like, "I'm just trying to do my thing," and this was happening to you. That that's what feels very real and very authentic to me about it. And I think it shows the the uh, the personality of the station and the fact that the station was this family dynamic and that you guys were at the center of of this weird family that then someday around the maybe even in the next the next episode that we do of our podcast maybe I could finally get to the end of FMU by playing the final show. Right, so you have that also. I have a recording of that where people called in to um, basically um, mourn the fact that we were shutting down the station because we felt that the uh, the university, the college was going to come and, and uh, you know, make all these rules and, and they were going to make it so that we couldn't do what we did anymore. So we decided to just quit and, yeah. and shut the station down. And it's amazing when you hear how the listeners felt mm-hmm. about the station. And um, to this day, I'll meet people all these years later who listened to me on FMU in 1968 and 69 who say to me, oh, my God, that was like, you know, such an important part of my life. And I'm like. And it was a year and a half. Yeah. 
you know, of of that being that the state. So FMU, as we've said, has gone on to become its own station and become and is still on the air and is still an amazing, crazy yep. place. Yep. But you guys shut down what you were doing. In, in, so that was September, you said? Uh, yeah, September of 69, and then it was off the air for several months, and then finally some other people brought it back on the air. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't as political, but it remained free form in terms of the music yep. um, ever since. Yeah. So I, I think we should um, put the period at the end of this podcast, don't you think? Yeah, thank and we'll... you, Mom, for talking to us about all that stuff. You're yeah, welcome. Thank you so much, Freddie. Thank you for having me. And yeah. we'll um, be back in two weeks yeah. um, with another episode of the Kate and Vin Skelsa podcast. And maybe we'll do that that closing night. Sure, at, that'd uh, be great. Because these are you know sort of funky old recordings to listen to that... And it's great because if you go to the Museum of Television and Radio, you can hear these recordings. But for people who don't live in New York or can't make it there, I mean, this is and that's what I want this this podcast to be. Also, is you have these this is treasure trove of incredible recordings since we started doing accessible. Yeah. Since we started doing this, I've I've gone back and I found um, something that maybe I want to do in in the episode after the next episode, which is a recording of me um, having Towns Van Zant on my show in 1977 on a Sunday morning yep. with Towns telling the stupidest jokes, <laughs> which he was famous for telling yeah. and, and just and performing live. And, and uh, yeah, that's what we're going to do. Cause yep. we've, we've said before that we can't afford to pay for the rights to play recordings music yeah and it's just very complicated yeah for and very complicated but we can play people performing live mm-hmm. so uh so that's what we'll do we'll play a recording of somebody performing live is different from a recording made in a recording studio released by a record company right i think <laughs> okay Sounds well good. thanks everybody thanks for listening let's eat okay <laughs> 